DealQuest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have Mel Abraham on the upcoming episode of DealQuest. I can't even tell you with Mel's background in deals and finances and money, and he's a, I'm blessed to have him as a friend of mine. You're going to love this episode. Mel, what are people going to hear about on your upcoming episode of DealQuest? Oh my gosh, we're going to hit on a, on a couple of uh, things, big things, I think. One from deals, but also how does an entrepreneur live their life? How do we How do we do things in a way that builds a business, has an impact on people, but allows us to live a life that we want? And uh, we'll talk about some of the challenges, that, the obstacles that get in the way and what we can do to kind of get through them and, and move through them so we can elevate you know, our purpose and what we're doing. I love it, folks. And listen, you're going to hear, you know, Mel's got a lot of personal experience, whether, you know, it's his own uh, background in valuing and, uh, you know, and, and buying and selling businesses and consulting, his cancer journey, we're going to talk about, I know. And also, little, don't miss this. He's got a, he's got a launch coming up on an amazing course, folks, that you're going to want to hear about on his episode of DealQuest. So check it out. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest listeners and viewers, I'm so excited to have Mel Abraham as a guest. Mel is a friend and an amazing guy. He's a CPA by education, but an entrepreneur by exhilaration, an author of the number one bestseller, The Entrepreneur's Solution, The Modern Millionaire's Path to More Profit, Fans, and Freedom. He's also the founder of Thoughtpreneur Academy and Business Breakthrough Academy, where he helps entrepreneurs bring their businesses to the world and build the lifestyle they want. Uh, after finding a cancerous tumor in his bladder larger than a baseball in June 2019 and successfully conquering it within 18 months, Mel began openly teaching the affluence blueprint. This is important because his cancer journey spotlighted the immediate and urgent need for entrepreneurs to find financial liberation and peace of mind. I can go on and on. I mean, he has been, you know, a guest speaker. He shared stages with people like Arietta Huffington and Brendan Bouchard and Tony Robbins. He's bought and sold his own businesses. He's he's advised other people on buying and selling businesses. He's a he's a CPA. I mean, on and on and on. But his full bios are in the show notes. Check him out. He's a super impressive guy. And I'm so excited to have Mel Abraham on the Deal Quest podcast. Welcome, Mel. Well, man, thanks for having me, Corey. It's so good to be here and uh, and get a chance to chat. So, Mel, before we go into all this great stuff you have going on, and I know you have a launch coming up, and I'm going to want people to hear about that and, you know, your deal experience, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because uh, for most folks, it's not what they're doing now, but who knows? You tell me. Well, so here's the thing. When you quit the, the range from 8 to 12, I actually started, got my first entree into entrepreneurship during that age time, uh, you know. 
My dad and I were sitting one day watching a movie with Janet Lee and, and Tony Curtis. It was about Harry Houdini's life. Okay. And I was, I was intrigued by this guy that no chains would hold. And, and I started reading and you hear, and, and I, could, I read so much about what he did and how he built his, his business, his reputation during that time. And, and so I got fascinated with that and magic. And, uh, and so when I was 10 years old, I started to learn magic and there happened to be a magic shop across the valley. And I would take the RTD, the, 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 the bus across the valley to this magic shop during the summer months every day. And I would sit there and I would learn and I would listen and I would, and some guy comes in and says something about, Hey, I got a gig this weekend and this and that. And, and then he leaves and I asked, I asked the owner, I said, what's a gig? <laughs> oh, that's how you, you know, he's, he's doing a show. So he's getting paid. I said, I can get paid to do this. <laughs> so uh, he said, yeah. And so I went home, I designed a, a, a show for kids birthday parties, which I, I started to do. I was getting paid $50 for a half hour show. Now we're talking about nice. was 11. So it was 1972. So it was a long time ago. So it was a lot of money for an 11 year old kid. And I would dress up as a clown. So now the, the, here's a lesson here. You want to know your market because uh, I quickly found out that kids are scared of clowns. So, so, but that was, that was the thing that got kind of lit a fire in me about this whole idea of, man, can you, you can actually do what you, you can actually get paid doing the things that you love and having an impact on people, whether it's having fun and getting put a smile. So that's that's where I started to play around with the idea of show business and this and that, which clearly I'm I'm far stream from show business. <laughs> right, right. But the entrepreneur the entrepreneurship part of it has uh, yeah. yeah endured. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, all right. One more question. Looking back, what is the first deal of any type? It could be something when you were young as a kid or later. You know, that comes to mind. Like first thing you would consider a deal. The first deal as a kid was probably negotiating the purchase of a of a Ford Bronco. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that my, my I have an identical twin brother and and we we happened to we didn't we did this without dad dad knowing uh, and it turned into a disaster actually because uh, <laughs> we didn't you know we went into a car dealership and we didn't know anything about negotiating but they certainly did. Oh yes. And uh, we drove out with this Ford Bronco, um, this brown Ford Bronco, and and drove up home. And, and, you know, mom and dad were like, what are you doing? And, oh, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. We never thought about, oh, there's insurance, there's gas, there's upkeep. <laughs> and uh, it didn't take us, but I think six months or eight months before we realized this isn't going to work. And and dad helped us sell it again. But that was probably <laughs> the first deal that I ever did. Um you know, just, just coming out of high school. But the reality is that when it came down to acquisitions and deals, I, you know, I went out of college as a CPA. I passed the exam before I, I finished college. I went to one of the large consulting firms back then. It was Pete Marwick and then became KPMG. Sure. The first job they put me, I was in the audit department. I was going the traditional path. The, the first job they put me on was to audit and do an inventory for a company by the name of Bandini in August. Bandini manufactures fertilizer. So I was in a three-piece suit with galoshes up to the thighs in steaming manure in August going, this is what I went to school for. Um, and then 
And then one of the partners from the merger and acquisition group came to me and said, I hear you understand how to use spreadsheets. Now, back then we were using something called multi-plan. Yeah. And he said, I said, yeah. He says, do you think you could help us model an acquisition and merger of three insurance companies? And I said, probably tell me what we need to do. And so I went and did this, this, the modeling for this acquisition for the, for the consulting uh, engagement. And I, and it was after that, that I sat back and I said, you know, this beats inventorying manure. Is there (laughs) any way I can transfer to the consulting department? And so I, I transferred in the, into the merger and acquisition group and finished my tenure at, at KPMG and Pete Marwick in that group doing consulting and M&A and valuations. I did enough. I just I did enough to to qualify for my CPA that they would loan me out to the audit department. But the majority of my time was in that realm. And that's where I started to get the experience of valuation and and deal structure. You know, connection with deals. What was some of the maybe more you know surprising or or initial things that you learned that were um, that, that were maybe a little surprising or something? You know, the thing for me, I had a really good mentor mm-hmm. um, at Pete, uh, uh, and he took me under his wing, and we were negotiating a deal. Now he did he had a connection with our Japanese practice, so a lot of the deals he was doing were with Japanese firms coming to the U.S. and vice versa. And so one of the things that I I got from him was this idea because I, I came into it doing spreadsheets and analysis and numbers, but he always came from it to it from a merger, if you will, or an acquisition of cultures, an acquisition of connection. And so there was always this process that uh or this this element of his looking at the deal and saying, how do we one negotiated. How do we structure it so we we feed, if you will, the culture, the connection with with them in a in a very different way. So there was there was a fair amount of customs that I learned uh, under his belt. So looking at other acquisitions and saying, you know, is there a culture element? And it was more than numbers at that point. And and it was uh, probably one of the biggest lessons that I learned, which I think is impactful on a lot of deals uh, going south and when we don't think about those things. Yeah, no question. And, you know, and obviously, and that was a time, you know, I think in the last 10, probably 15 years, this conversation of culture, right, you know, has become so much more prevalent. There's been books written on it, that kind of stuff. But, you know, back then it was less talked about. Uh, You know, I mean, I think as any good deal lawyer um, or accountant or anybody consultant or whatever, like knew it was important, but it wasn't in the popular lexicon yet. It wasn't something people talked about. Uh, it was even even in the deal world, in my mind, it was less of a open, you know, like, you know, I think the smart people were looking at it, but it wasn't something that you openly talked about, right? You talked about deal structure and fit and numbers and what's going to come to the bottom line and efficiencies and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it was less popular than to talk about outright, right? It, it really was. The thing is that in that realm, what, this mentor was showing me is that the other side actually didn't want to have the conversations about the deal until we got the formalities of the personalities in play. And they separated the two. They said, let's break bread. Let's, let's, let's connect. And then we can talk business. Well, and 
part because you said that was Japanese, right? There was some Japanese yes. players involved, right? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because, yeah, I remember, like, it was such a, I think things have evolved, but yeah, back then it was such a cultural difference because, you know, you, you know, the classic U.S. was like, okay, what's the deal? What are we doing? Let's get down to business. And other cultures, certainly the Japanese culture. I remember, I'll just, I'll just, just trigger a quick story. I think I might've told this once before, but um, we had a major deal with a Japanese buyer back uh, in the, uh, let's see, it must've been in the eighties. Cause I was like, I think I was either a first year associate or maybe even a summer associate at a law firm. And, um, and we actually had a cultural consultant that we hired for the deal to make sure that there were no faux pas, right? And, you know, and it was everything from, like, even how you accept a business card traditionally in, yes. in Japanese, right? You don't just, like, glance it and stick it in your pocket, right? You know, you with both hands, you review it, you look at it, you acknowledge it. You There's a reverence. Up, you put it down as a reverence, exactly. So we knew all that stuff, and and uh, we got to the closing table. And again, I'm a summer associate, a first year associate. I have no sway in this. I'm just there, you know, running copies and proofreading. And uh, we got through the whole deal without any kind of faux pas, or whatever. We're literally, you know, in a conference room, big, big, big conference room with documents lined up, and all these people, you know, the you know Japanese lined up to sign. My client signed it. I was on client signed up to sign. And next thing we know, there's this big, you know, something goes wrong, right? We don't know what it is. They're talking in Japanese. Or, Consultants, well, apparently what we were not advised on and what my, my firm at that time hadn't done was gotten special pens, special ceremonial pens, oh. right? We just had regular pens, right? And the, the culture is that you you actually give a pen as a gift. They sign this one document, this one set of documents, one deal with that pen, and that's it. And then that pen is a momentum of the deal. Well, they failed to do that. So literally... We had to send you know somebody out to run. At the, in those days, it was cross pens to the yeah, like, oh yeah stationery store and get nice cross pens uh, for the deal, and then the deal closed. So it was you know it was, it was interesting looking derail the deal. It really is interesting how those little things can derail something because there there becomes this personal disconnect. Yeah. So Mel, let's jump for a second. You know, we we I I didn't even do it justice. I don't think in your bio. I didn't. You know, your, your bio is so extensive and so impressive. I didn't want to you know read it all, but I do want people to get a better feel for them what was in the bio. Of, you know, really what you're doing now, who you help, who you serve, and how you serve them. Oh, and so like you said, I'm a I'm a CPA. Um, I my primary focus as a CPA as I come through this was uh, was really valuing businesses. Um, working in deals and working in litigation and mediation, typically commercial litigation, tax litigation, and that kind of thing. So I was always in the middle of value and, and that type of thing. And then that that skill set, I realized, had other benefits, other things that I could have done. So that bridged into, and at this entree, this was probably 15, 16 years ago now, I did a valuation for a company that was founded in the 1800s. Uh, late 1800s, and they oh. they they said they wanted to sell. And I'm looking at the the I, I value the business. I'm looking at it. They're they're losing margin. They're losing market share. And and I I'm in this board meeting with these you know older generations are are sitting there. Uh, and I said uh, this is not the time to sell. And I go. They said, well, what do you, what do you mean? I said, you're you just went over the edge of the rapids and you want to jump out of the ship. You're going to get hurt. You're going to lose money. And they said, "Well, what do you expect us to do?" And uh, 
And I said, we retrench, we rebuild, we rebuild our margins, we rebuild our, our market share. And then if you choose to sell, we can sell at that point. And they said, well, how do we do that? I said, now, mind you, they had no debt. I said, they're completely debt adverse. And they were stripping out probably $100,000 to $200,000 a month in dividends to the shareholders. Okay. And I said, stop the dividends reinvest in the company. You would have thought the devil was speaking. <laughs> like, so so I, I leave that meeting and literally a year goes by and I get a phone call from the chairman of the board. And he said, I know you probably never expected I would call you, but would you be our first outside director? Wow. And, uh, and so that I, and I had no idea that directorship is, is just like I didn't know that you could do a magic gig and get paid. All right. of a sudden, directorship. So now I spent a lot of time consulting with entrepreneurs. I'd sit on a number of boards of directors um, as an outside director or as a shareholder director in some cases. And, and I, I consult. And, and a lot of my work is mentoring and coaching entrepreneurs and businesses to build their business, but also... Um, understanding that most most shareholders, most entrepreneurs, they're looking for something beyond the business, and that is financial independence, financial freedom, and those kinds of things. And so, I, I have uh, in the recent years started to really spend some time working with them, saying, "How does the business and your financial independence work together to make that happen?" Great. And then you have some training programs as well, right? Uh, Various types. So, give give us a little bit on that. And uh, I know you got a launch coming up. I want you to mention that, and then we'll circle back and talk some more deals. Oh yeah, you got it. So, uh, I do have some training programs. Uh, One is is the Affluence Blueprint is my my main signature program. It's real. This is really how I built my wealth and my businesses. And and just to give you a little backstory about it is. I was a single full-time dad building a business, building a practice. And I had a, you know, at the time, Jeremy was six years old and he came running into me saying, daddy, daddy, I drew a picture of you at school today. And I, here I am, I, I've been down, I'm thinking I'm going to see this picture of, you know, this studly guy, but there I was as a stick figure, um, staring at two computer screens and a one phone in each year and one on the desk ringing. And I said, Oh man, I'm screwing it up. And, uh, and you know, the, he was, he's been like one of the greatest gifts to me and I was botching and it would have been easy for me to sit back and say, Hey, but kid, this is how we keep the roof over our heads. This is how we, you know, we can do Disneyland and all that, but he didn't see that we weren't doing that. And that's when I started to realize that this idea of work-life balance is a myth. It's really about work-life harmony because balance insinuates you got two counterbalancing elements. And so, so, how do we harmonize the things in life and the things in business together so they coexist? And and that then fast forward to 2019. So I changed my business. I changed how I looked at money, how I built money and uh, business and money from that time forward. And I didn't realize how important it was. But 2019, as you know, I got they found a five centimeter tumor in my bladder, which turned out when they went in to be seven and a half centimeters. So I found myself dealing with cancer that I never, I mean, not that anyone ever thinks it would happen, but I didn't have the risk factors, but they're looking at me going into a surgery saying it's on the prostate. We might have to remove the prostate. It's on, we can't see the ureter on the right side. So we might have to put a tube in and a bag for the kidney. And if it's bad, you may lose your bladder. 
And so like my life just got completely flipped upside down and coming out of that. And fast forward, you know, four surgeries, uh, no, three surgeries, four tumors, 42 treatments. I'm clear. I'm clean. I've been clean. I go back in for a scope in November. That'll be 18 months. Um, feel great. But the thing that was the aha and what made me move forward with the affluence blueprint in a broader way is I've been working one-on-one with clients, but I came through this cancer. I shut down my business for two years. Mm. I spent the time focused on my healing. I had to fight the cancer emotionally, physically, medically, psychologically, energetically, but I didn't have to fight it financially. And what coming off the heels of the cancer, we had the pandemic and I had a lot of my colleagues and friends coming to me saying, how did you do it? Because we realized the importance of doing this now. And they knew that I was doing it one-on-one with clients, but they said, why are you not teaching them more broadly? And so what we've done with the Affluence Blueprint is said, let's give the system, let's give the process um, to make it happen. Uh, We look at, like my son's 31, his wife's 28. They just had their first child. And the things that we do, and it's not hard stuff. It's not complicated stuff. It's just disciplined and process at 31 and 28, they have three homes and a multi-million dollar net worth already, you know? So mm-hmm. I started calling him my 401k. So he's going to, take. <laughs> but I think that's what brought this to the surface is this idea of how do we create, how do we deal with where the, the intersection of business wealth and life come together in a way that allows us to not be entrapped by the business uh, imprisoned by the business or imprisoned by life, but we actually truly live free financially. I, I love that. And, you know, folks on this podcast who just know me otherwise have, have uh, you know, um, I use the word integration instead of balance. It's the same exact conversation. Yeah. I came to that same conclusion a long time ago that if you, that balance is impossible, but, but there are there are people now it's become popular to say balance is impossible, but they say it in a way where they just like they've given up or they just say that, you know, it's a very different conversation to say balance is impossible because not, not because the paradigm's wrong, right? Because the thinking right. on it's wrong, right? If you held all these things as separate, no, you cannot juggle all of them. Something's going to drop. But if you, if you think about integration, you make different decisions, right? It, for me, it, it affects where I live, right? You know, there's a reason why my firm went virtual six years before the pandemic or five years before the pandemic. And that's because I made a living decision that I wanted to split time between New York and California. And in order to be able to do that, we had to be able to set up to work, we work virtually. And then I realized my team loved working virtually. And then we, you know, had all the advantages of being able to hire people and, you know, not subject to geography. We ran the business at a higher profit margin because we dropped, you know, we only had meeting space when we needed it. All of these things that everybody has now started really doing during the pandemic. Plus, we didn't miss a beat in the pandemic. Now, where did that come from? Was it because I was totally pressing about the future? Not necessarily. It was because I was making work-life integration or harmonization yeah. decisions on what I wanted my life to be like and how would that work? And that led me to make business decisions that benefited me financially and then set me up to be powerfully set up to not miss a beat when the pandemic came. That was so this is so good because to me, when you talk about integration or harmonization, there has to be a level of intention to the choices you're making. Whereas in most most cases, people 
are don't realize it, including myself. I went through the same thing when I was at at Pete and KPMG, where you got on a on a boat and a, going down a current and a river, and you you don't you don't really know where you're going, and you have no oars, and you're not steering, and so. It, once we start to become intentional, whether it's about our business, our life, our relationships, our health, things shift, things shift. Yeah. yeah. So obviously that's one of the principles I, I, we're not going to give away the whole thing and you, you couldn't, there's a reason why it's, it's an opportunity for people to join, but you know, wh- what else just, what are the fundamentals? Like what are some of the, the, the things that somebody's going to learn in this uh, course you got? So, so there's three pri- primary pillars, you know, and, and, the first is that we need to have a system to generate income and cash flow. Um, we got to have a way to make it. And this is where a lot of entrepreneurs excel, um, business owners excel. They make the money. They're doing well with the money. The, where they fail is in the second pillar or the third pillar. The second pillar is that we have to have a system to accumulate it. Mm-hmm. We come to a business. Most of, most of us come to a business. I did the same. Come to the business and say, I'm going into business because I want to have control. I want to have freedom. I want to be able to do things my way. And and uh, and that's it. And all of a sudden, you find you're, you're what I call a treadmill entrepreneur. You're running. And the only thing you're doing is saying, I, you're like George Jetson on that, that treadmill. And, and you're going, get me off this crazy thing. And you can't get off of the thing. And, and the, the reason for it is that we believe that the business is going to give us freedom, but the business was never meant to give us freedom. The business was meant to create an impact and give us cash flow. Mm -hmm. And then we have to create the second machine, which is the money machine. So we have the business machine and the money machine. We create the money machine. That's where the freedom is. And this is where most entrepreneurs fail to consider because they look at their business, say, one day I'll sell it or one day I'll, and that's the windfall. And it may be, but why not create a little more diversification to make sure that you're not dependent on that one strategic sale that that can or come may come in or a pandemic that harms your business. And now the sale you thought you were going to have, you can't have. Uh, and so there's this level of accumulate a pillar that we need to think about and the mindset that you need and the skill set that you need for generate is different than what you need for accumulate. Yeah. And, and so in one case, we're trying to maximize opportunities, minimize downside and, and, and take on, we take on some risk, but in the accumulate, we're completely risk averse. We're trying to preserve, we're trying to build, we're trying to multiply. If generate is making it accumulate is multiplying it. Yeah. And then, so before we go to the third, I, I yeah. mentioned this before, but I want to give a shout out to to uh, Barbara Yusan, formerly Stanny, uh, who's a, a phenomenal uh, coach, works mainly with women around finances and stuff like that. And uh, she's she's a, a friend of uh, ours, a friend of my wife's. And and I had one call with Barbara many years ago in which she said to me, you know, she got my financial history and whatever. And I, this is exactly the point that Mel's making here, which is why I want to say it. And she said, boy, you know, because I had my ups and downs, like I was always able to make money, but in terms of like, you know, having the wealth built up. And she said to me, boy, you know how to generate income. You just don't know how to build wealth. <laughs> <laughs> and and the funny part is like just getting, you know, I'm a big believer that um, the, the start of any change is to get a, distinct, a new distinction, right? Yeah. 
you know, so just having that new distinction that she put in my mind changed everything for me. And I have since built significantly more wealth than, than I ever did. And, and by the way, I've had more income, but the, but the wealth building is actually not related to the more income because in the past I would have had more income and I would have gone somehow. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was that mindset shift, like, Oh, wait a second, generating income and building wealth are two different things. And I, you know, and I, right. Like I'm, I got that one unlocked, but this one I got, well, I got to put some systems in place. I got to focus on that. I got to, I got to learn how to build wealth. I don't know how to do that. I know how to generate a lot of income, but so, yeah, yeah, so that's that's the point there. And then we you were about to go to the third. Yeah, and I know of Barbara. I've read, read her stuff, listened to her stuff. She's great. So, yeah. Um, and then the third the third pillar is insulate. So it's generate, accumulate, insulate. And, and look, the more, as, as unfortunate as it may be, the more successful you are, the bigger the target may be on your back. And so we need to insulate from uh, a variety of risks, whether it's uh, lawsuits or... Uh, losses or claims or just, you know, I mean, I, I wiped out one third of my net worth in a positive team. Not that I did it intentionally. It sounded like <laughs> I did, but um, so, I mean, how do we protect not only what we've built, but our ability to build it? So, you know, in, in that section, we talk, I talk about things like uh, I had herniated three discs in my back, back in uh, from a bike accident in 2009. Um, and, uh, and I was out for a while, but I had a disability policy that covered everything. And I negotiated with them. They wrote me a big six figure check so I could just focus on healing. And, and so whether it's risk mitigation or ensuring it, that there's ways that we need to make sure that we protect some of the things and, and had this conversation with someone recently about, they don't have a trust. They don't have, um, and, and they said, well, you know, that's our, I said, no, I said, you actually have an agreement in place. The question is, is it agreement by choice or is it an agreement by legality? Cause the government will take over and do what they think is right with your assets and the things that you want and your children and your grandchildren. I said, are you prepared to allow that to happen? And they go, no, <laughs> I said, right. well, we need to figure that out. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So, and, uh, and just, we'll spend one more second on this and I want to circle back to some more deal stuff, but so you've got a launch coming up on the, on this uh, product. So what do people, what do people, what should people know? So, so I'm doing a three part live training series starting October 28th. So I'll start digging into some of these things. Uh, there's a, an action guide and, and workbook that we're going through. It's it, it is a workshop. So to, the first part of it is for me to, to really cement in what's the affluence journey, what are the barriers to that journey, how how does that come into play, and how do we how do we quash those barriers? The second training will be what are the the five core principles that wealth building principles that affluent entrepreneurs really need to have in place. Some of them may surprise folks, and in really figuring out what your what I call your lifestyle wealth target is, you know what is that number because. Too often, this this is something that, you know, most of what I teach is because it happened to me. Uh, <laughs> right. you know, when, when I had the bike accident, I had a dear friend who had retired at 36 years old come and take me out to lunch. I'm in a neck brace. I'm stuttering. I had a grade four concussion. And, and he looked at me and he said, how much is enough? Mm. And I said, what are you talking about? I mean, I'm still delirious. They go, what are you talking about? He says, 
how much is enough? He said, the reason you got in that bike accident is you were distracted, you were running, you were stressed out, you were angry, and you don't know where your finish line is. Wow. And I go, oh, man. So we never know when we get there. So we're on that treadmill. We keep running. And so one of the things that we're going to do in that second training is let's figure out where the finish line is. And then in the third training, I'll walk through the nine accelerators of the three pillars of the affluence blueprint. So they understand specifically which of those nine they might be lacking, where they need it, and, and that type of thing. So that's those are the three trainings we're going to go through, deep dive, and, and try to make it happen. Love it. Love it. So, folks, this episode is going to air on the 27th. So the first training is tomorrow, When if you're hearing this. Yep. If you happen to... Um, you know, listen to this a little later, a few days later, I'm sure you can go back and, yes. and, 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 and hop in, right. And get a recorded version and then do the, uh, the next couple of live, uh, yes. now, right. Absolutely. Okay. There'll be an all access page where I'll have all the trainings for everyone and the resources. Awesome. Let's take a break from the show for a minute. So I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking as you were talking um, because, of course, I did not have the benefit of your wisdom and this three-part strategy when I went through my uh, journey on this. Um, it's been great to get to know you since. And, uh, you know, it's so funny. I'm, I'm very blessed to have some amazing folks, you know, not only Mel, I mean, uh, my good friend and client, David Bach, who, you know, I'm like, why didn't I read The Automatic Millionaire back, you know, when even when he wrote it, you know, or after that, you know, or The Lati Factory is out, you know, much more recently, whatever. And just the simple idea of if I put away X percent of the money I earned from the time I was 20, how much, you know, <laughs> 25 or whatever, how much better I would have been now and other stuff. But but the point is that, you know, I'm around these, you know, these folks now and it's been real, real blessing. And you know, I was thinking when you're talking about the three stages and how, you know, you right, you know, you you um, you, know, you earn it, you accumulate it. Right. And then, you know, you move into this and there's risk involved in that and you move into the stage where, you know, you, you, you're going to more protect it. But what, what's interesting to me, and I don't know if you talk about this in your training, but what I realized to me, as I have learned to build wealth, thank you, Barbara, um, uh, and I've had more of it, it actually has obviously made me more secure, the things I do to protect that, but it has also freed me up to take more risk, right, Yeah. on the business side, because I'm like, hey, I can make this investment. I can do this bet. I can, in fact, listen, I'm about to, I'm about to, you know, I'm, I'm just starting to look now for a very senior attorney. This going to cost me a chunk of money, right? I don't have full-time work for this person right now, but I know that it's for me to continue to grow. In fact, I've artificially been limiting our growth because I want to make sure we can, we can provide great service to clients. I'm going to make that investment. Well, it's a heck of a lot easier to make that investment now, listen, I, I'm, I have a level of confidence. We'll build the business. It'll pay off, whatever. But even if it doesn't, right, I know I can fund these multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, um, you know, uh, if I need to. And while I wouldn't love to lose that money, I can do it, right? Yeah. yeah. So it actually, that kind of, you know, the more you, you're protected, whatever, actually, I think there's a circle back 
where it actually frees you up to take more risk, including the ability to, to do more deals. Well, I totally agree with you. The whole idea behind there's a couple of reasons to, to build wealth. One is one is to give you options and, and and everything. But the other thing is to me, this whole idea is about how do I get my dollars to work harder for me than I had to for them? Right. And so I got to put them to work. And when we do that, we take strategic. I do the same thing. I, I invest in other companies and, and, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm in a software company. I may go into another software company, you know, just, uh, and I'm willing to do it. And I go, okay. Like I had, I did a, for a, a cancer drug, uh, a while back and I, I'm, I may lose the money, mm-hmm. but it, I'm willing to take the shot. And it's not, it, you know, like you said, I don't want to lose money, but at the same time, I can make some strategic bets and be okay with it and be comfortable. And I know that it's not going to take any food off our table and and we can have those those opportunities. And so I, I, I do think that you can approach deals, whether it's a, a deal you're doing on your with yourself, 100% yourself, or like like I am is as in effect, like an angel investor and, and yeah. that type of thing where I can get involved in a deal or behind a movement that I choose to get behind and, and that kind of thing. Uh, because we've, we've built enough that we now have that, that ability to do so. Yeah. So there's a place I want to go because I, one of the things that's fascinates me and I'd love to get, you know, my guests to sometimes some, I guess, at least to talk about it, which is this uh, mindset conversation, right? The mindset of a dealmaker. And, and some folks think, you know, when you think about the mindset of a dealmaker, you think about those things about, oh, you know, they're, they're risk takers and they're right, good at their feet or whatever, they're good negotiators, like uh, that kind of mindset stuff. But I'm talking about, um, you yeah, know, I mean, I'll take anything you have to offer on the conversation of mindset. But also, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of folks, even folks who may initially have the reputation of good deal makers, like blow themselves up because of, you know, all kinds of stuff, whether it's relationship to money, whether it's, you know, we know people in the personal growth industry, for example, where, you know, Mel's got connections, contacts that work with people. So have I, you know, who were big time players who blew themselves up. Right. And, you know, you sort of wonder how somebody like that and some people come to the conclusion that it was all a fraud and a house of cards and fake to begin with. And that may be true that some of them, but with a lot of them, I don't believe that's true. I believe that they actually had a good intention. They were looking to build something. They did build something at a certain point, but then, but then it blew up on them. So, you know, and sometimes that's related to the mindset. So in working with people in understanding both deals and also, you know, when you work with people around, like, you know, that you're going to do in this, in this, uh, in this course, you know, a lot of it is so around the right mindset, right? And yeah. relationship to finances. And, and that brings up stuff about their self-worth and, and how they were raised, right? Like there's a lot yeah. of stuff underneath that. So it just, I want to open it up for, you know, any observations. Of I, lots of, yeah, see, I, lo- I love this, this conversation, Corey, because so I did a bunch of interviews of people when I was kind of doing some research and everything. And people were anywhere from startups to million dollars to hundred million dollars to even having a conversation with someone that sold their company for over a billion two. Every single one of them, without without question, every single one of them had some level of guilt, shame, or embarrassment about money, about wealth, about what they've done, whether it was because they had it or because they didn't have it. 
Right. And, and so, so I think one of the things that we need to realize is that whether it's business, we can, we talk freer about business than we do about financials because yeah. it's financial, it's wealth disguised as business. And now that's okay. It's not taboo, but we bring with it whatever baggage we have. Um, I, I, I'm ashamed in a sense to say this, but when I first started building the firm, I was a jerk to, a, I mean, I was a horrible manager and I had no idea. And, you know, I was going through a rough, rough patch in my personal life and I brought it to work with me and the receptionist, I had no idea. I found this out later. Once I turned the corner and realized the error of my ways, Sure, she would put a different color post-it note on the top of her computer. So when people walked into the firm, they knew whether Mel was in a good mood. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was horrible, but here's what I'm getting at is that things happen to us and there's the set of facts. Uh, We hear things, whether it's, you know, mom and dad arguing about money or the media or the demonization of, of businesses or wall street, whatever it is. We hear, we hear something, we see something, and we see some facts. But what we do is then we overlay on it interpretations. Yeah. And it's those interpretations that get us in trouble. We interpret that money is evil. We interpret that building business is, is, you know, is wrong or, or whatever you want to do, or is that, that all they care about it is money. And when we interpret that, that in turn creates what I call a money identity, a threshold, if you will, that we live into and not because of. And until we're willing to take a critical look and separate the facts, let's just look at an example. Uh, My, like I said, I got involved in a Ponzi scheme. I got involved in investment in 2004. By 2005, I realized it was a Ponzi scheme. I was in it deep, one third of my net worth. Uh, me and two other friends were into it for four and a half million dollars. So when it came about, one of my one of my buddies, he was angry, he was resentful, he started to, to drink, he destroyed his marriage, he destroyed his business, he destroyed his liver. He's just coming out of it wow. in the last two years. So that's 05. We're talking 15 years have gone by. The other one was a guy that had since retired. And so all he did was adjust his lifestyle. He had the, the smallest amount in there and just kept on living. And then there was me. I started to go down that resentment road and, and, and all of that and start to, but I started to beat myself up. I said, I'm a CPA. I'm a financial guy. I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm, how can I do this? I can't consult the people. They shouldn't hire me. I should. And all that interpretation that was going on would have destroyed me if it wasn't for my son, Jeremy, where I sat back and said, He's he's watching. And if he sees that the way to deal with adversity is to curl up in the corner, then then I'm setting him up for a life of pain, too. And so that's what got me to say, wait a second, what what are what's the facts? The facts are I put money in. The facts are it was a Ponzi scheme. The facts are he stole it. The facts are he's a schmuck. Facts are he's in jail. All the rest of it was my shading of it. And if we're trying to, and once I understood that, then I could deal with the stories that were impacting my life and separate out. And so if people are struggling and say, well, how do we know the facts from the interpretation? 
the facts are what you would see through a camera lens mm. without emotion, with no sound, with nothing. You're just looking through the viewfinder and you say, oh, he gave him money. Oh, he stole the money. Oh, he's going to jail. That's it. Everything else is an interpretation. And I think that when we understand that, we have at least at our hand in, in our hands the ability to shift and change things. Yeah, you and I are so aligned on this. I mean, I did some personal growth work that you know that is aligned with that, and you know talks about how the thing with human beings is that we're meaning making machines, right? You yeah. Know, oh, just, yeah. Like we make everything mean something, and the ability to make that distinction between like facts and you know and meaning or interpretation is so is so key. And, you know, and even it comes in, you know, like, I, I, uh, I don't know why I thought about this the other day, so I'll, I'll mention it. You know, there became this thing, and some friends of mine really got into it, whether it's the, you know, uh, Miracle Morning, like, if you get up early, you're more successful or whatever. Or or this thing about, um, uh, I forget, it was it been an Army general. Somebody gave this speech about how making your bed. Every making day, your bed, yeah. It was right? That was the big thing. Like, you make your bed, and that means that, you know, you're starting the day, you're on it, you're organized, you're together, you're right? And for me, I'm not, like, if that works for you, great, run with it, go make you bad, right? Um, but the thing that people don't realize is that's not true or not true, right? Yeah. In other words, the only thing that is fact in that case is you either made your bed or you didn't make your bed. Exactly. Neither of them mean anything other than the fact that you either made your bed or didn't make your bed, right? Um, so for me, it's always the context you put around it. And what I spend a lot more time on is looking not about what's right or wrong or true or not true, because the truth is everything's seen through the filter anyway. And it's hard to know, you know, uh, that in terms of our personal life on whether, you know, does, does making a bed every morning make you more successful? Well, and not objectively, but you know what? If you hold the context that it does, yeah. then it does. And yeah. by the way, if, you, if that's going to be an empowering context for you, then go make you a bed every morning. I can create a context around not making my bed every morning that says that I only do the stuff that's in my highest and best use areas. I'm not going to spend any time on doing anything that doesn't really move the needle. So I don't make my bed in the morning because it would be a waste of my time. I could spend that two minutes, you know, doing something better. And if that's empowering to me, it's not any more right or wrong than the people who use making their bed is empowering. The question is whether it's empowering or disempowering, right? Yeah. The truth is I actually mean that way, but I have another context called my wife really likes the bed made. So when she's around, I make the bed to keep her happy. You see, that's my context around the making the bed. But my you, point are, is, you are so, uh, you and I are like, on point with the same thing. I don't. I don't do it. My wife loves to do it. Yeah, and listen. You know, I joke because we have a seemingly neutral rule that says the last one up has to make the bed. Of course, she always gets up earlier than me, so it, you know that's a discriminatory effect. I'm always the one making the bed. But my point more so is that you know everything, and that's a little example. But everything is about, in, in my mind, the context you create for it. And yeah. like, so if we're meaning making machines. Let's make a meaning that's empowering for us as opposed to disempowering. It's not right or wrong. The people who make their bed, if it's empowering for them, that's right for them. You know, for me, it's empowering maybe not to make my bed, right? So, um, you know, and it's interesting for me because I don't think this conversation is unrelated. In, in fact, I think it's very related to the mindset of, you know, of, of a deal maker, right? Yes. In other words, you know, what is your mindset around what deals mean? You know, if deals mean something that you have no idea, you know, you get afraid of, you don't know what you're doing, you take risks, or even that you're going to do them out of some ego-driven or growth, you know, external pressure to look a certain way or grow a certain way, you're going to do bad deals, right? But if you're going to do them out of a clear why, and it's going to be an empowering context, 
love to hear your thoughts on. on well, that. I think that you're you're right on on point with with all of that, and and I think that that also impacts your ability to negotiate a good deal because things get in the way. If we once we understand what the other side's really reaching for, then we have the the ability to start to structure things in a way that that potentially puts us not at odds or across the table from each other, but sitting side by side trying to solve a problem. Yeah. And I, and I think that too often we come to a deal where one side's trying to give, the other side's trying to get. And, and that is a hard place to get a deal done. And... And I, I think that yet when we understand when we're willing to come to it empathetically and say, let me understand what we're trying to accomplish, because it may not have anything to do with the price, the terms, there may be something else. And when we understand that overarching context, especially when we're doing deals with uh, small, closely held businesses that and I've had this conversation numerous times from a valuation standpoint, because you know, I've had the, the sole owner come to me and say, I've been working this business for 25 years and I come in and I value it. And they go, there's no way it's 25 years. I said, I said, understand something. Your buyers will buy economic value. You're trying to sell sentimental value. They don't want it. And I said, I know it's hard to accept, but, but yet if we were trying to negotiate a deal and we understood those other elements of the deal that are qualitative, then maybe we could present something to them that satisfies them and get a deal done that makes sense. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Mel, I could talk to you forever, uh, but we are coming on time. So I wanna, uh, before I ask you my last question, I I wanna give you an opportunity to let people know where they can find out more about you generally, and then also specifically about this uh, upcoming launch. Oh, I appreciate it. So generally they can, uh, I'm on Instagram at Mel Abraham nine. Um, I'm on all of the webs, uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, and my my main website is melabraham.com. Uh, the the training that we're doing, if you just go to affluencelive.com, you can jump in. It's free, um, and just register and go through the training. And uh, and uh, and if it and I also have a. Uh, show a weekly show just like this that uh, called the Affluent Entrepreneur Show, and I'll answer questions uh, uh, on there. I'll bring guests on, which Corey, we're going to get you on, and uh, and then I'll do some solo shows, some of the principles, some of my frameworks, and everything. So those are the places that to, to find me and follow me. And uh, if there's anything that comes up, reach out to me. I'm 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 I love having conversations. Awesome. So folks, again, if you're listening to this. The day it comes out, uh, the first training is tomorrow, the 28th, right? Yep, 28th. March. Um, and give that URL one last time. Uh, affluencelive.com. Affluencelive.com. So, Mel, to finish up, uh, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression from all people in the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and haven't had a boss uh, for a long time. Uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Oh, my gosh. So this is you're right. Like you, you set me up. So I look at an affluent entrepreneur and I think there's three critical outcomes. Uh, one is that they live a richer life. Yeah. richer lifestyle. And, I, and, I, and I'm using the term richer because that's the experience and feelings you have from the, from what you do and not the money you have. They have a deeper impact. 
meaning that they impact externally towards the people that that they serve, but they impact to the right and left to the people they love and they impact backwards to themselves. Wow. And number three is that they have complete freedom. And that freedom, the most, the most elemental basic freedom, which is what most people think they want, is financial freedom. I know that's what I wanted, what I thought I wanted. But there's two freedoms above that that I think really start to drive things. And the cancer really brought this home uh, even more solid for me. And that is the, the second level up is time freedom. Yes. The freedom to choose my time when I want to do it, to be, to be able to do what I want to do. I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I've got colleagues that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and they're miserable. Yeah. You know, they're, they, they, they're imprisoned by their wealth. They're imprisoned by what they do. So they might have a really nicely decorated prison cell, but they're in prison anyway. Right. You know, right. so time freedom. So the ability to do that. And then the last level of freedom for me is, is mind freedom. Yes. Have the peace of mind to know that I lived in alignment with my values, with what I was here to do, what I was chosen to do, that I've cared for the people that I care about, and that that I left left an impact that makes sense. You know, my my tagline is to make sure that we always always out, uh, live a life that outlives us. Yes, love that, Mel. Thank you so much for being an amazing guest on the Gilquest podcast. Oh, man. Thank you for having me, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.